Israelis are now pondering a hugely consequential decision. Should they change the status of some of the territories under their control, drawing borders that have for more than 70 years remained fuzzy? The Trump administration appears to have given a green light to such alterations, so long as they're in line with its peace plan, sometimes called, with either bravado or derision, the deal of the century. With me to discuss the pros and cons, the opportunities and pitfalls, are Jonathan Shanzer, FTD's Senior Vice President for Research, who has written extensively on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and other Middle East issues, and John Hanna, Senior Counselor at FTD, who has worked as a top advisor in both Republican and Democratic administrations. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Let's start with the basics. John Shanzer, what specifically is the new Israeli government considering? So the new Israeli government is considering a proposition that's been put on the table by the Trump administration, and as you called it, the deal of the century. Uh, this is the vision for Middle East peace, uh, as articulated by the president and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who was the chief architect of the plan, that would basically afford the Israelis an additional 30 percent uh, of the West Bank uh, that would formally come under its sovereignty, come under its laws. This would include the majority of the existing settlement blocks, uh, the environs surrounding Jerusalem, including even a bit of Hebron, which is a bit trickier to dice up. And then, of course, also the Jordan Valley, which is a territory that the Israelis have long stated is crucial to their security as kind of an early warning system uh, that they would be able to detect threats coming from their eastern front. And so all these territories uh, amounting to about 30% of the West Bank uh, are now on the table, and the Israelis have to decide whether they are prepared uh, to uh, apply sovereignty. Hmm. All right. I want to make sure we, we get our terms straight. Uh, John Hanna, you're, you're the international lawyer. Annexation, occupied territories, what do these mean? Or also the term the Israelis are using, which is application of sovereignty, uh, application of Israeli law. T- talk a little bit about these terms, what they mean, are they accurate in this context, and, and really why they're important, because definitions, I think, do matter. Right. Um, so the the term annexation, which seems to be the, the most popular term now in use of, of what the Israelis might do and, and what the Trump plan allows for, um, is really not the best term because it suggests that you annex territories from territories that belong to someone else. And in fact, as history tells us, the West Bank and Gaza before the 1967 war were held by the Jordanians with regard to the West Bank and and Egypt with regard to Gaza. Those were taken by Israel in the defensive war of 1967. 
The Palestinians have never held sovereignty over those territories. And in fact, a far more accurate term is those territories are in fact disputed between these two peoples, between Israel on, on the one hand, and apparently now the Palestinians on the other, because the Jordanians and Egyptians have opted out of the game of claiming sovereignty to those territories. So the, the, the term extension of sovereignty, uh, which is what Israel is proposing, is actually the more accurate term. Of course, it's a, it's a major political football now, but it's one that's, that's worth pushing back. These are not, in fact, in any international legal sense, Palestinian territories that Israel is annexing. Yeah, you know, and let me make a further point that I'd love you both to comment on. And, I'm, and I don't say make this point either in support of or opposed to whatever Israel is, is thinking of. But in the Middle East, and really much of the world, territory is, comes to uh, under possession th- historically, almost in all cases, through the use of force. A, a territory is conquered. I think the only exceptions I can think of in the Middle East where territory was not conquered but was voluntarily given up would be Gaza in 2005, which is where the Israelis said, we're pulling out of there and we'll let the Palestinians take over. Initially, it was meant to be, I think they had hoped it would be the Palestinian Authority. In the end, within two years, it was Hamas. Of course, the Sinai was given back to Egypt. Not Israel had conquered it in a defensive war. They gave it back in exchange for peace. If there are other examples, I can't think of them. I mean, if you think of the area that is historically Palestine, it was conquered by had many conquerors over many centuries. The last few centuries was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire falls to uh, the Allies. The British Empire takes over, takes it over under the League of Nations. That's why it's called Mandatory Palestine. It's mandated to the to the British. We're supposed to decide how to give it independence over time. Uh, when the British leave, that's when the Israelis declare independence. The UN has a partition plan supposed to divide what's left of Palestine, Palestine, Western Palestine, Eastern Palestine, the British turned into what is now the Kingdom of Jordan, and the Western Palestine was supposed to be divided between an Arab state and a Jewish state. That's how they called it, Arab and Jewish state. Um, so th- that's the history of it. If, if Israel were to give over parts of the West Bank to a Palestinian state, uh, they'd be do- doing it w- without military conquest. That would be at least unusual, historically. John Chancer, any comment on that? Do you disagree with my analysis? Well, it would be unusual, although it would be actually somewhat typical for the Israelis. The Israelis continue to cede territory uh, to their enemies uh, in the hopes that they might agree to make peace. We saw this in, in Lebanon in 2000. We saw it uh, in, in, in the Sinai uh, as a result of the Camp David Accords. And even uh, with what we've seen in, uh, and certainly in Gaza, as you mentioned, and in the West Bank, I mean, we already have territories A and B. These are territories that have either full control uh, under the Palestinian Authority or partial control. And, uh, you know, Israel didn't need to do any of these things. Israel has done so voluntarily uh, as a gesture. Uh, or as a means to try to establish some kind of an agreement or even peace. Uh, and uh, it has failed repeatedly. And, and there is, of course, this is, I think, the, the major question that's being asked in Israel right now, which is if we keep giving over territory and it keeps getting taken over by bad actors and those bad actors continue to target us, 
why would we want to do this? This is the question that, the, uh, that many Israelis are asking and why they're saying that this is an historic moment afforded to Israel by the Trump administration to apply sovereignty and to establish borders and territory uh, that would be beneficial to Israel moving forward. It's not that simple, of course, and, and of course, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is the argument that I think you're going to hear from many in Israel right now. Cliff, I would also just say, I mean, there is a, you know, an international legal framework here. There is a UN Resolution 242 that suggests that there is an impermissibility to the seizure of territory through force. Uh, It doesn't really talk about defensive versus offensive. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an assumption under that resolution that somehow there would be territories uh, these disputed territories that are somehow returned to some Arab partner. It's not entirely clear who that Arab partner would be. The Jordanians who had that territory before 1967 have opted out of being the sovereign power in, in the West Bank, and therefore we're left with uh, what happened in Oslo and, and, and the Palestinian authority that got created out of the Oslo process. And But as John says, um, That's a process that has been rife with absolute frustrations and several Israeli offers, uh, one more generous than the last, um, and yet a constant drumbeat of Palestinian inability to say yes to any of those proposals or even to really negotiate seriously on the basis of those proposals, despite an American superpower mediator Uh, really actively engaged at a presidential level, at the level of the American Secretary of State over the course of at least three different administrations, all of them having the same result of absolute frustration and getting nowhere because of an inability of the Palestinians to actually take take yes for an answer. Let me me just press you on one point, um, that historically under international law, is there no difference between a territory acquired in a defensive war and territory acquired in an offensive war? Certainly at the end of World War II, the Axis powers gave up territory, that to uh, lost territory um, on a permanent basis. Hungary is a lot, just take one example, is a lot smaller than it used to be. Yeah, no, I don't dispute that. I, certainly as a matter of practice internationally uh, before the United Nations was created, before UN Resolution 242 uh, on the impermissibility of, uh, of the acquisition of territory by force. Again, it didn't make this distinction, which I think is a crucial distinction. I do think it's a distinction that matters in practice and that does weigh in the, in the balance. And yet I do think uh, that the, uh, the the proponents of the whole land for peace equation and uh, uh, the assumption that Israel is going to give back those territories at some point uh, don't make that distinction. And they have some basis, I would say, under uh, particularly UN Resolution 242 to try and try and make that claim. Right, right, right. Um... One more, before we get to the advisability of, what, of this, let's at least ask one more sort of basic question, and that is, 
the whole concept of land for peace, the Israelis giving up territory and getting peace in exchange, sort suggests that this is at, at base a, a territorial dispute. And there are those who say it's not a territorial dispute. Hamas will not accept Israel on one square inch of territory that has ever, ever in history been conquered by Muslim armies because such territory is theologically, in Hamas's view, an endowment from Allah to the Muslims. So they can't. Mahmoud Abbas, head of the Palestinian Authority, is not quite so theological, but it's been years since he's seriously been willing to sit down and negotiate with the Israelis. He's 84 years old. I think we can conclude that he does not intend to end his life by making peace Bibi Netanyahu by coming to the White House and shaking hands. He'd rather be somebody who spent his career, as did Yasser Arafat, resisting uh, the Jewish state. If it's not a territorial dispute at base, um, does that change the equation here? Jonathan Chancer, go on and talk, elaborate on that. Yeah, look, you raise a fair point. And, and actually, for our listeners, I direct you to uh, a new book by Anat Wolf and Addie Schwartz. Uh, it's a great book I actually just finished. Uh, about the uh, the sort of ideological battle that the Palestinians have been waging. And, and what this book uh, really details, I think uh, very clearly, is that you have Palestinians on all uh, of all political persuasions that have simply refused to accept Israel's existence and that they're playing the long game. They'd like Israel to continue to, you know, to, to yield on territorial concessions uh, and to soften its stance as they continue to mount an effort to try to destroy the, the Jewish state, either by way of war or uh, through kind of a death by a thousand cuts, which I think is how we've seen it on the um, uh, on the negotiation side of things. But overall, I think you're right. This is not just a, uh, or at least traditionally has not been a matter of, okay, well, here's your territory and here's ours and let's go our separate ways. Had that been the dynamic, we could have solved this a long time ago. Really, I mean, specifically looking at the Camp David summit of, uh, of 2000, at the end of the Oslo uh, negotiating period, you had this incredibly generous offer that was given to the Palestinians. Arafat, uh, uh, Yasser Arafat, the president of the Palestinian Authority back then, said no, and instead elected to wage uh, the second intifada against the Israelis. I think that was the real eye-opener for the Israelis when you asked this question, that's why I think many of them today still believe that applying Israeli sovereignty or annexation, depending on how you want to describe it, is the right move because there is no Palestinian partner. This is the, the term that is wielded in Israel, that there is no partner on the other side, not Hamas, not Abbas. Nobody actually wants to engage with the Israelis because it is, in fact, an ideological battle. And there was also an offer in 2001, and in 2008, Mahmoud Abbas turned down what I think a lot of people would say was an extraordinarily generous offer, more generous than any other, than certainly more generous than you can imagine coming from Netanyahu. Is that not true? It is true uh, that each offer got uh, got better. Uh, you know, some might argue that some were more serious than others, but let's put that aside for a minute, and 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 also let's just you know again remember what's going on here now which is that the Israelis saw their leadership as being effusive, incredibly generous in terms of territorial offers. They were rejected one after the other. And, uh, you know, the sense was is that the Palestinian side was increasingly intransigent. 
increasingly unwilling to budge on any of these issues. And so what this new deal that, that Trump has put on the table is doing is turn the tables entirely. It actually takes all of the power out of the hands of the Palestinians up front. It gives everything to the Israelis that they would reasonably want to accomplish. And then it puts the Palestinians on notice that if they don't get their own house in order, then Israel will just be able to annex without a two-state solution coming on, on the back end of this. And that is another reason why the Israelis really like this deal. Again, there are problems and we can discuss what those yeah. pitfalls might be. But oh. overall, the Israelis do like this dynamic because it is so different from what has happened in the past, which front loads all of the goodies for the Palestinians. And then all they have to do is just say no. Right. And the, 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 this deal, uh, as I had seen, leaves open for a minimum of four years the possibility that the Palestinians come to the table and begin to resume negotiations in the hope that they would and that it would be, it would be, it would, then it would be a different sort of situation. Do you, ex- Mike Pompeo, John Hanna, Mike Pompeo made his first pandemic trip abroad to Israel. We don't know everything he spoke about. We know some of the things he spoke about, Israel's relations with China. I expect that he discussed this, what we're talking about now as well privately. Do you have any sense of that? It's very hard to tell, Cliff. I mean, we had very contradictory um, reporting on exactly why Pompeo decided to make this very brief trip there, still in the middle of the pandemic, only several hours worth. Uh, the New York Times, for instance, did say that it, it, it looked like Pompeo was giving Netanyahu a yellow light on the issue of annexation, uh, that he was trying to slow it down, that he, uh, his spokesperson talked about, yeah. yes, uh, Israel can go forward, but in the context of some kind of perhaps negotiation with the Palestinians. Uh, so I think there's really a lack of of clarity on exactly what the position is. The prime minister himself just recently came out in the last several days and uh, told, I think, the Likud coalition that July 1st is still the date uh, that Israel will proceed with extending uh, the plan to extend sovereignty, that the maps that they've been working on with the Americans on exactly how these uh, borders and these uh, phases are going to be defined uh, are almost ready, and uh, July 1st is still the date that Israel plans to move forward. So that raises this, John Shanzer. Um, there is now, after at long last, an Israeli government. Israeli governments are always coalition governments. This is different. Coalition governments usually means a coalition of allies. This one is a unity government of rivals, although Bibi Netanyahu is still the prime minister. Um, Benny Gantz of the Blue and White Party, which is the rival party to the Likud, is very much in the government. Do you suspect they have different views on this issue? I do. Um, I had an opportunity to talk to one of um, Gantz's uh, top advisors back in February. It was the last trip I was able to take before this uh, lockdown. And it was it was actually very clear uh, the way that this official put it. He said, uh, look, we really, uh, every Israeli appreciates the way that this deal is constructed. Um, we, we love the idea of having the ability to apply sovereignty and to be able to exercise our right to be able to do it. But, uh, you know, we also recognize that this does potentially imperil the two-state solution, which is something that the Israeli left remains wedded to as a construct. Um, there is also concern about how the U.S.-Israel relationship has been built, at least in part, on the idea of pursuing peace in the Middle East, even if it's not achievable 
the idea of the U.S.-Israel relationship being built on that construct was also uh, something that, that he raised and concerns about what it might mean for uh, getting along with the Democratic president or, the, or Democratic members of Congress. So all these issues were raised. It's not as if uh, the folks within Gantz's camp don't see the benefits, but that they're a bit concerned about what happens if they move too fast or what the fallout might be. Uh, as I as I put it to a journalist recently, it's a little bit like the 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 dog catching the mailman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, once you finally get there, then there's a question: of, Okay, well, what do I do? How do I do this the right way? And uh, you know, we're just I, I think the Israelis are wrestling with that. And, and to a certain extent, I would say that this kind of push and pull that we see between Gantz and Bibi is probably a healthy one. Mm-hmm. That you know, you, you have kind of uh, you know, kind of uh, a, a guy on each of the shoulders of the Israeli government, right? whispering into their ear, kind of saying, here's what you need to do. And it's likely you'll see some kind of compromise. I don't know what it looks like, but it's likely. So I feel like we've kind of set the table and it's maybe time to dig in. Um, if there are other things that people need to know to, uh, to, to, to ponder this question, feel free to, 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 to contribute them. But let me start with this and, 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 and let you disagree with me. The argument for doing this the argument for extending Israeli sovereignty to part of the West Bank, not inhabited by Palestinians, by the way, changes nothing on the ground, but maybe, just maybe, it jolts Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority into recognizing that their adamant refusal to negotiate, to compromise, is getting them nowhere. But the argument against is, hey, it ain't broke, so why fix it? Israelis in these communities, these settlement blocks that we're talking about um, that would be annexed or Israeli law would be applied or they'd be made, uh, they'd be come under Israeli sovereignty. These communities, um, yes, they'd be under civil rather than military administration. There's some convenience to that, but that's about it. So why not let sleeping dogs lie? Why risk a breach with the Saudis and the Emiratis and others with whom Israel has been getting friendly? Uh, relationships have, relations have been improving. Um, maybe there's no good reason to change really the semantics so long as the situation is manageable. Let me throw that out to you and chew on that a bit, a little bit. Shanzer, it looks like you're, you're eager to talk about it. I guess I'm always eager to talk. <laughs> uh, um, look, I, I think the, the Israelis, um, certainly right now have a better situation than they've had in, in a long time. You have an exhausted uh, Palestinian side. No one is interested in waging war uh, against the Israelis. There is good security cooperation with the Palestinian Authority right now. They're wrapping up Hamas cells on a regular basis. Coordination has been good. Um, they, up until uh, recently, I would say over the last year, things have soured with the Jordanians. But even there, the professional relationship has been excellent. Um, and they've coordinated closely over issues relating to Jerusalem as well as West Bank related issues. So that's been going well. And then on top of that, as you note, you've got this warming relationship with many of the Arab states. And now all of a sudden, the, the, the prospect of going in and changing the status quo, making big moves that kind of send shockwaves throughout the region, this really could uh, destabilize Israel's very positive position right now. And I would say that that is you know, at least one of the top two or three reasons to be extremely careful about mm-hmm. next moves. And, and really, I think 
you know, I, I, again, it's this big move thing that often worries me that you, you take big steps. The Middle East does not respond well. When you act kind of step by step and you're kind of pragmatic, that often plays a little bit better, um, you know, kind of the boiling frog thing, uh, you know, where you turn up the temperature a little mm-hmm. bit here and there. I think the Israelis, if they, you know, I, I like to think about the Bush Sharon letters, right? The these 2004 yeah. letters where they talk about applying sovereignty to uh, settlements that already have long been established. And thinking about that, I mean, very few people would oppose that. I mean, of course, there are those on the Palestinian side who will. But internationally, this has become a norm, right? If the Israelis did that before looking at Hebron, before looking at, mm. at the, the Jordan Valley, one could imagine the Trump administration would say, of course, this is in view uh, or in line, rather, with our view of, uh, of, of the Middle East peace plan. And by the way, we appreciate the fact that you're taking things slow and making sure that you coordinate with some of our Arab uh, partners um, and allies. I'm going to, John, Hannah, let me let you come in on that. Any place you agree or disagree, and then I have another question that stems from that. Go ahead, John. Yeah, well, I, you know, I come at this mostly as a, as a practitioner of, of U.S. foreign policy and thinking about what makes sense for the United States, what are the big challenges big threats that we face. Um, I've spent a good part of my career in government, uh, starting with the Clinton administration all the way, certainly through the Bush administration and into Obama, criticizing major American initiatives to try and resolve the Palestinian issue. And I think that argument has only become more trenchant over time. Uh, The Palestinian issue right now, uh, more than it ever has been in history, uh, is is really marginal to the things that are really going on in the Middle East. You see that in Israel's re- growing relationship with some of the major Arab states. There are much bigger fish to fry, certainly for American foreign policy, from Sunni jihadism to the Iranian threat uh, to managing uh, uh, the crisis situations in places like Syria and Iraq that the notion that we ought to devote enormous time and energy to stirring up the hornet's nest in, 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 in the Palestinian territories at a time when nobody's really paying attention to it. But now we're going to place the whole issue of extending Israeli sovereignty, changing the status quo, which was very manageable from an Israeli standpoint, and put that front and center and force the Arab state and other people to, to deal with that as sort of the, the first issue in the Middle East, uh, I think is, is questionable. It really ultimately will come down to a question of intelligence and analysis. Uh, what will happen if Israel does take this move? If it begins to annex territories, if it, in, it annexes all the territory, uh, uh, this 30%, including the Jordan Valley, that's been allotted to it under the Trump plan, what are the consequences for Israel and the Arab world for its peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt? If you can convince me that, in fact, it's going to be a minor blip on the screen, that there might be a few months of hullabaloo and people complaining. And yet after that, Israel and Bahrain will be signing a non-aggression pact publicly. Uh, Israel and the UAE, their relationship will continue forward in cooperation against the Iranian threat. Will, will go on, uh, I can easily be convinced that strengthening our Israeli partner, who is only going to become more important strategically to the United States as we begin to pivot to deal more forcefully with China, 
and Russia in great power competition, that we need a strong, secure, confident Israel that does know its borders. I could easily be convinced of that proposition if the intel reads that way. So let me, I think that raises this question I want both of you to weigh in on, and that is, uh, is there a, a middle way? Is there a, a Solomonic way to split the baby, as it were? Um, for example, you have one of the areas of the West Bank where there are large Israeli community settlements called where you, which would you will. Second, you mentioned there's the Jordan Valley. That's a different kettle of fish, if I can mix my metaphors. Why? Because the Israelis are there because it's strategically, militarily, very important that the Israelis be there um, because there could be another war at some point. There have been at least two from Israel's Arab neighbors. Now, I would argue that King Abdullah of Jordan does not mind having the Israelis in the Jordan Valley on his uh, western border, uh, but he can't say that. Um, He is put in a difficult position if the Israelis apply sovereignty there. At that point, what happens? Um, he has to be outraged. He has to seem outraged. He has to seem like he can do something about it, which he actually can't. Um, there are those commentators who say, well, the King of Jordan shouldn't have a veto over Israeli security. That's true. But the other part of that question is, the Israelis surely, for all the, the difficulties they may have with Jordan, I doubt they would want to see the Hashemite kingdom overthrown. It is unlikely that what replaces of it would be better, more peaceful, a better partner for security concerns. So are you hurting King Abdullah needlessly when there's no challenge to Israelis' military presence in the Jordan Valley, which, by the way, for the people who don't know, doesn't have a large Palestinian population or a radical Palestinian population of that. And then the second part of that is, and, and John Shanzer brought this up, there are Israeli community settlements, again, call it what you will, like Male Adumim or Ariel, there is no way under any conceivable peace agreement the Israelis are going to bulldoze those communities and drag those peoples from their homes, shut down the synagogues, uh, and remove people from the cemeteries, all of which they did in Gaza, and got in return nothing but missile strikes and terrorism ever since, since 2007. They're not. So what if, would it make a difference if they said, okay, it's important, Mali Adumin, Ariel, some of the other big settlements, that these fall under Israeli sovereignty. Um, but it's not important that Jordan Valley does. And it's not important a lot of other places do. And we don't have to do everything tomorrow. We can decide a year from now what else to do, depending on whether we have a negotiating partner or not. If they were to do that, in other words, if there would be a limited application of sovereignty in Israeli law, limited annexation, would, would, the, would the reaction be just as bad? Or would, would various people at the European Union, maybe the United Arab Emirates, the Saudis, the Jordanians say, okay, we'll make a little bit of a fuss, but the Israelis actually compromise with us. We can see that. It's not such a big deal. And that becomes what we in the West like to call a win-win. Chance to start with us. Yeah, look, um, I, I actually like that um that that scenario a lot more than applying sovereignty in all these other places where perhaps the ground hasn't been softened. Um, I like the idea of Israel bringing uh, into its fold 250,000 uh, people who are right now considered settlers and who would be uh, officially under Israeli law. It would take care of some of the demographic issues that I think have concerned 
Israelis and Americans alike for many years. And I can see that being, um, you know, a, a step that I'm not going to, let's not exaggerate here. I don't think that you're going to have the Europeans come out and, you know, uh, and, and start throwing flowers at the Israelis saying, great job, right? That's not what happens. No. But, but I would imagine that quietly behind closed doors, they would be breathing a sigh of relief saying, well, at least it wasn't Hebron and at least it wasn't the Jordan Valley. And we knew this was going to happen anyway. I believe that there would probably still be harsh things said at the at the UN, uh, which of course is like any other day. Um, the Israelis don't need to annex territory in order to get slammed at the United Nations. Uh, you would still see the BDS movement probably get spun up over this and, and make calls to boycott um, Israeli products, which of course happens every other day. Uh, but I do think that this is probably a more manageable thing. I'm more concerned really at the end of the day um, you know, as a sort of a first order priority is the stability within Jordan, uh, because the king has uh, put a lot of uh, kind of eggs into this one basket. He's really made this an area. It's a hill that he's ready to die on. He's basically saying, if you do this, you know, I'm I'm ready to uh, to uh, perhaps even scuttle the U.S. Uh, Jordan, uh, or rather the Israeli Jordan peace agreement. This is something that is unthinkable, and we just we we don't want to see that. So. Seeing maybe kind of a, a, a measure that doesn't go all the way as a means to test the water to me makes a lot more sense right now. And then, um, you know, and then look, I would also say this, that one of the reasons why the Palestinians are saying right, no right now is because they are not sure that Trump's going to win a second term. Mm-hmm. If Trump wins a second term, then you got four more years of this. The Israelis have a heck of a lot more leverage. The international community has a lot less leverage. And all of a sudden, you know, I think the dynamic changes. So come January, it could be a very different situation where the Israelis will have many more cards to play. Well, okay, so John had a comment on that, but I also add this to the mix, which is the, the impact of these various scenarios uh, in, in, domestically in the U.S. There is a difference between where most Democrats are on this and where most Republicans are. A Biden administration would take a very different how do you see that? How playing out with the various the various options the Israelis are considering? Yeah. Well, first, I I do I agree with with both of you that a an Israeli plan to extend sovereignty that's whittled back to the major settlement blocks, which would be a big deal and a big accomplishment for for Netanyahu. Um, that uh, that would be much more certainly in terms of managing the international fallout uh, of the would be much more manageable, both for the United States and for for Israel. Uh, The question of the Jordanians and Palestinians in Jordan, who, of course, make up a a huge percentage of the Jordanian uh, population, is is still there to be be dealt with. But uh, obviously, the Jordan Valley, on top of everything else, would make that much more much more difficult. On the other hand, if you're an Israeli government, you have a chance now to finalize your eastern border and to extend sovereignty, not just your security border, but your political border right up to the to the Jordan River for all time and get American recognition for that. Uh, to pass on that, I can imagine, is a politically different, difficult thing for an Israeli prime minister to, to do. But certainly in terms of managing the international fallout, uh, if Israel only did the major settlement blocks, that would be much more uh, manageable for the United States and Israel uh, to do. Um, 
I do think, uh, and that applies, I think, domestically as well, that uh, the Democrats, there have been at least one letter written by Democratic senators that made clear that any annexation would be very problematic for them. It would create issues in terms of their relationship with Israel, the way they view uh, Israel, uh, the effect it would have on, on obviously, the Democratic base. but again, uh, if Israel was to uh, have a, a plan that wasn't everything, all 30 uh, percent, but instead was whittled back to some of the major settlement blocks that all Democrats in positions of power understand, the Israeli are, are never going to uproot those populations. So it's just a matter of do you wait for a negotiation to achieve this with everybody understanding that these are going to be under Israeli control? Or do you allow Israel to go ahead uh, and and do this unilaterally outside the context of a negotiation and outside of any agreement with the Palestinians? Nevertheless, I do think it's, it's more easily manageable, but I do think it's something that certainly the Israelis have to think long and hard about what is the impact here in the United States, because while the Democratic Party, the base of the party, I think, has got real problems with Israel preceding anything having to do with annexation, there were bad trends in the Democratic Party regarding Israel. On Capitol Hill, at least, uh, I think there is a still strong bipartisan support for the relationship with Israel, for the strategic, for the common values that we have. And, uh, and I think it's worthwhile for Israel to take that domestic American component into account in any plan that it, that it eventually puts forward and decides to act on. So are there points or arguments that we've not discussed that my questions haven't brought out that you want to make as we come close to the end of this uh, discussion for today? Either one of you? Jonathan Chancer? Yeah, look, um, I, would, I would just note a couple of other uh, maybe words of warning here. One is uh, that amidst the coronavirus lockdown, we have seen a moribund BDS movement. We have a movement that is unable to, uh, to activate on campus. Their voices have been muted significantly. And, and the companies that have traditionally come under BDS pressure are not willing to take some of the chances that they were taking before. Why would they want to divest from an Israeli company right now when uh, you know Israeli provides a, an incredible technology and investment opportunities? BDS is, I don't want to say it's beaten for good, but right now it is, it, it is in retreat. And I, you know, the concern here is that Israel kind of pokes the bear and all of a sudden BDS comes roaring back uh, even amidst this lockdown. And, and I think that that's something that Israeli decision makers are going to have to wrestle with. I mean, I think, again, we can argue that BDS is going to be around regardless um, and that they don't need an excuse to target Israel. I've always seen this as a, uh, an economic war against Israel just because it exists. I think that's the primary reason behind BDS. But I do believe that uh, BDS will get uh, wind in its sails from a move like this. And so I think that's one reason for Israel to exercise some caution. The other thing to just note is the way the Europeans have responded to all of this. They have been uh, issuing direct threats. This is very different than the kind of traditional European anti-Israel animus that we have seen uh, in years or even decades past, 
where they harbor kind of this, you know, kind of latent anger toward Israel. This is very explicit. They're warning Israel very clearly. I actually attended a session where European diplomats were openly discussing uh, the possibility of punitive measures uh, against Israel. Now, one could say, look, Israel can get past this. They're resilient. It's a big world out there. There are lots of other supply chains. It's important to remember Europe plays a significant role in, in Israel's economy. You cannot rule that out. But the other thing is, just think about this, and this is kind of playing chess, thinking a couple moves ahead. But let's just say that the Europeans start to cut off business ties with Israel. Israel's going to have to look for alternative supplies, alternative supply chains. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the cheapest seller. They're going to go to the cheapest partner. That's inevitably going to be China in many cases. And of course, right now we're looking at a push here in the United States to get our allies, including Israel, to back off from China. So if we think a little bit further on down the, down the line, you know, what we don't want is we don't want to see those tensions as we think about the grander scheme of things. And then one last thing that I would just note, and John Hanna mentioned this, but I think let's just stress it. The key goal right now for the Israelis is not to add territory. The key goal for the Israelis, at least as I see it, is to defeat their number one enemy, their, the, the greatest threat in the Middle East, and that threat is Iran. And I would say that right now they need the Europeans, they need the international community, they need the United States, they need the Arabs to defeat Iran. And I think Iran is right now on the ropes. I don't know how, I don't know how we can quantify that, but it's in a weakened position. And the U.S. government conti uh, continues to press with its uh, campaign of international pressure. I would do, if I were an Israeli leader, I would do nothing to, uh, to alter that course. I would want to try to harness as much international cooperation as I could to achieve that goal of destabilizing the Iranian regime. Well, John, Hannah, final thoughts from you. Yeah, well, I think that's the big question. And, and the Israelis have got to determine, uh, you know, is this at, at a minimum going to do minimal harm to the real strategic objective, which the United States obviously has, which is to um, contain and uh, constrict that threat from that Iran poses to the region and to American interests in the region. Anything that, that helps that is, is positive, including Arab state support, the entire uh, region focused on the Iranian threat. Anything that really would detract from that in a significant way, I do think, is, is problematic. I would say it's important for everybody to understand that whatever Israel does here or doesn't do, the Palestinian issue is not going to get resolved. Anybody who hopes that the Palestinians will come to their senses and realize that now for the first time in history, they're actually, the longer they take to get into a serious negotiation, the more they actually have to lose, which as John says, it's reversed the, the normal historical trajectory where they were able to just wait and wait and wait, say no, no, no and continue to get better and better offers from the Israelis and the Americans. That's now off the table. Time works against them. But anybody who thinks that's going to jolt them, this Palestinian leadership to their senses, and that they're actually going to come forward and make proposals of their own to say, okay, we don't like the deal of the century the way it's been outlined, but here's our offer for a serious peace deal, which is the most, the smartest thing they could possibly do in this, to go to President Trump together with the Egyptians and Jordanians and Saudis and Emiratis and say, we're against annexation, Mr. President, but we now are ready to get into a serious peace negotiation with you. 
that's probably the one thing that might be able to, to actually sidetrack uh, whatever momentum there now is behind a unilateral Israeli effort. I have no hopes that the, the Palestinians will actually do that. And therefore, this is a problem that is not going to go away no matter what Israel does. We're not going to have a have peace anytime soon, no matter what Israel does. This is going to continue to be a problem that the United States needs to manage that's kind of marginal to American interests uh, while we deal with the really big threats that confront us in the Middle East, which is Iran first and foremost. Right. Uh, listen, I think we're, we're largely in agreement here. Um, my final thoughts and opinions, um, I, Palestinian leaders do, right now, those who are in place, certainly in Hamas, Mahmoud Abbas, we have no idea who's going to succeed him, really, because a, 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 a coherent process for succession has never been set up as it should have been. After all, the Palestinians have had only two leaders, Arafat and Abbas. Um, they're not going to make peace with Israel. I would like to think that there are plenty of Palestinians who think it's time that we are not led by rejectionists, time we are not led by people whose ambition is the annihilation of Israel, because I'm not going to see that in my lifetime. My kids are not going to see that in their lifetime. We have to go. We have to move on. Let's figure out a way to peacefully coexist. I don't know that those who lead or rather rule will listen to that, but I would like to think that this may be an object lesson. Maybe that's too hopeful. At the end of the day, American friends can advise. It's, like it's up to the Israelis to decide how best to defend themselves and their children from enemies who unfortunately still regard the Palestinian cause as not the achievable dream of living in a state uh, with freedom, but as the extermination of a small nation uh, next door. My final point, one should always consider what is justifiable, but one should never confuse what is justifiable with what is strategic. Those are separate decisions. This is to be continued, and it's been a good conversation with you, and I want to thank you, John Hanna, thank you, John Shanzer, um, for having this conversation with me. Thank everybody who has tuned in to listen to this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fbd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.